More and more interest has been developed in how to slow the progression, potentially even improve vision of patients with geographic atrophy. There are a lot of potential targets for diseases like geographic atrophy. The idea of using a pill to treat dry macular degeneration um, would be wonderful. Hello everyone and welcome to our next episode of Cognition Conversations entitled Geographic Atrophy, New Strategies to Protect the Retina. I'm Tony Caggiano, I'm the Chief Medical Officer at Cognition Therapeutics, and it's my pleasure to introduce our expert panelists for today's conversation. Firstly, I'd like to welcome our moderator, Dr. Gustavo de Mores, who is Chief Medical Officer of Aura Clinical, the organization conducting our Magnify trial in dry AMD. Next, Dr. Jeff Heyer, the Director of Vitro Retinal Service and Retina Research at Ophthalmic Consultants in Boston one of the most prestigious multi-specialty ophthalmology practices in the United States. Dr. Heyer has been principal investigator for numerous clinical trials and new treatments of macular degeneration, vitreoretinal surgery, and diagnostic imaging of the retina. And last but not least, we welcome Dr. Peter Kaiser, the Cheney Family Endowed Chair and Ophthalmology Research Professor of Ophthalmology at the Cleveland Clinic Lerner College of Medicine. As a National Institute of Health-funded investigator, Dr. Kaiser leads a team involved in the evaluation of vascular biology and age-related macular degeneration and diabetic retinopathy. Dr. Demores, why don't you get us started in today's conversation? Thank you, Tony. Dry MD is a leading cause of blindness worldwide, and in the U.S., we have approximately 20 million people affected, of which about 1 to 1.5 million have the most advanced forms of disease, including geographic atrophy, which is our focus here. And the developments in this field have been fascinating. For a long time, we started now thinking that geographic atrophy was the main villain now that we found the cure for wet AMD, which of course is, is an overstatement, but still geographic atrophy was considered uh, another sentence to the patient's quality of life and vision-related quality of life in particular. Uh, and now we're seeing a, a huge development in this field. The first uh, therapy is now being approved uh, by the FDA to prevent the progression of GA. Gus, if I could make one comment. You mentioned that we had these advances in wet AMD, and as we've gone on, we've started to appreciate how devastating advanced dry or geographic atrophy is. It's really, to some extent, it's been the success of those wet AMD treatments that has labeled patients who normally would have lost their vision from wet AMD continue on this path to more advanced dry AMD and geographic atrophy. How do you think about or classify advanced AMD? For the longest time, we thought of advanced AMD as really just wet or exudative AMD. And as our treatments evolved, and, and really the dramatic success we've had with wet AMD treatments enabled us to control many of these patients, we started to approach dry AMD, and in particular geographic AMD, more carefully. What's interesting is Peter and I have been doing this a long time. I'm a little older than Peter, but we've both been in this for a number of decades, and it used to be patients came in with 
the diagnosis of wet AMD, and they were devastated. This was, in essence, a diagnosis of loss of central vision, of, of legal blindness. Now patients come in, and if they're told they have advanced dry AMD, they're disappointed. So, Peter, for our audience who are not retina specialists, can you describe what's the hallmark or what's going on in the eye that leads to geographic atrophy? When you start off with macular degeneration, you always start with the dry form. And in that form, we see very characteristic type of appearance on the clinical exam, including uh, drusen. Uh, as the disease progresses, these drusen increase in number and in location. And eventually we have damage to first the photoreceptors and then eventually the RPE which leads to something called geographic atrophy. We call that late dry macular degeneration. The interesting thing is the reason these drusen form is if you look inside of them, they're basically these garbage dumps of the RPE. So the RPE is the most biologically active area in our eyes and they're constantly pulling basically debris and trying to eliminate it and sometimes the process gets overwhelmed and you have buildup in drusen. So some of these byproducts that are building up in drusen give us an idea to what's going on. So for instance, we see a lot of amyloid beta oligomers in drusen. We see other forms of lipoproteins in drusen. And these are all building up. And hence, we think that by attacking some of these things that occur to produce drusen, we could hopefully slow the process down. Both in AMD and glaucoma, my specialty, uh, low-grade inflammation, uh, oxidative stress seem to be very important in the pathogenesis of the disease. Uh, given where we are with approved therapies, can you tell us a little bit how complement pathway activation uh, and other underlying biologic processes are involved in geographic atrophy? Peter really touched upon this very well in saying it's, it's exciting to us that unlike VEGF-mediated diseases where we know vascular endothelial growth factor is that smoking gun, that target, there are a lot of potential targets for diseases like geographic atrophy. And certainly complement inhibition has gained a great deal of um, exposure as of late for a number of reasons. But there are other factors in this as well. We know that the photoreceptors and RPE cells have among the highest metabolic activity in the body, and that we often see oxidative stress there and reactive oxygen species there that also play a role in inflammation. If you take those factors and you couple those with other, say, lifestyle choices like diet, like exposure to light, tobacco abuse, obviously one of the most obvious, those also play a role in leading to oxidative damage, inflammation, and again, potential triggering of the complement system. There are also the neurodegenerative processes like is seen in Alzheimer and the impact of beta amyloid and the inflammation caused by that actually has led to hypotheses of Alzheimer's disease and AMD sharing some common pathways to inflammation and disease.
I'd like to ask Peter to give us a brief summary of the various therapeutic mechanisms that are actually being explored. So really the first area that, that's really very exciting is to target other aspects of the complement cascade besides C3 and C5, which have been shown to work. But factor D, factor B, C1Q, late stages by blocking the formation of the MAC complex. But these are all right around looking at the complement cascade. In addition, we're seeing a lot of stuff even earlier. Jeff mentioned that the eye and the RP in particular, the photoreceptors are some of the most biologically active locations in the body. It's constantly converting light into energy. And that signaling produces toxic byproducts, produces reactive oxygen species. So the idea of reducing this oxidative stress using different types of molecules is being looked at. He also mentioned amyloid beta and some of the similarities between Alzheimer's and dry macular degeneration come into play in that we see amyloid beta oligomers in drusen. We know that these oligomers can activate both the complement system as well as causing macrophages to come in. And those macrophages being activated could lead to wet macular degeneration. So some of the early work surrounded the idea of using amyloid beta inhibitors, largely from the Alzheimer's space, but that was really just not as targeted as we needed for the eye. And sort of the second generation of these amyloid beta inhibitors are being looked at currently. Uh, and are in clinical studies, the idea of reducing these toxic oligomers from forming um, and then allowing that to prevent the activation of the complement system. Stem cells are also being looked at for the treatment of dry macular degeneration, but this is really in its infancy. And the other area is because this area is so biologically active, Visual psychomodulators, things that slow the visual cycle down have also been tested. But what's so exciting about this for Jeff and I is, is that all these different drugs actually have different mechanisms of action. Uh, and, and theoretically in the future, maybe some of these different mechanisms of action could be combined and, and lead to even better treatment of dry macular degeneration. You know, Gus, it's interesting that in glaucoma, you guys have been doing this for decades. In oncology, they've been taking multiple mechanisms of action for decades. So let's move to topic three, preclinical evidence for sigma-2 receptor modulation in dry MD. Cognition Therapeutics has been developing CT1812, which is a sigma-2 ligand for dementias, particularly Alzheimer's disease and uh, dementia with Lewy body. We've long been interested in dry AMD, primarily because of some of the biology that the sigma-2 receptor regulates, namely autophagy, lipid metabolism, trafficking of cellular processes. And so early on in our Alzheimer's development, as we pulled samples from our subjects, such as blood and tribospinal fluid, we began to look at changes in protein expression within these samples. And we saw that many of the top pathways that were coming up when we did these protein analyses were pathways that were involved in geographic atrophy and dry AMD. So this piqued our interest and we began to look deeper into the literature and saw that indeed genome-wide association studies had linked proteins that are part of the sigma-2 receptor with either protection or risk for dry AMD. 
As we looked farther, we saw some data suggesting that knockdown of one of the sigma-2 proteins is protective against dry AMD. So again, we thought this was very interesting and we sponsored some studies on our own looking in the dish and we were able to show that we could normalize the function of retinal pigment epithelium with our sigma-2 ligands, including CT1812. We can normalize their function following stressors such as protein aggregates like A-beta oligomers, but also things such as oxidative stress and inflammation stressors. So this was very encouraging that the biology of sigma-2 could protect retinal pigment epithelium and perhaps be beneficial in dry AMD. Well, if, if we look at some of the ways that the sigma-2 receptor uh, would, would work, for instance, in Alzheimer's disease, it, there, there's so many parallels to why it would work also in dry macular degeneration. So one of the things I mentioned earlier is this idea of these toxic amyloid beta oligomers, which we, we find in drusen, causing the inflammation leading to complement uh, activation, as well as macrophage uh, polarization and, and recruitment to the retina. None of those things are good. So the idea of targeting sigma-2 allows us to reduce these amyloid beta oligomers, reduce some of the oxidative stress, and this is in front of complement activation. So in fact, you're kind of moving upstream of where we're targeting with the C3 and C5 inhibitors. And to me, that's incredibly exciting because that moves us earlier in the disease process. Jeff, we, we briefly spoke about this in, in terms of how these different uh, therapies with different mechanisms of action could be used clinically. Can you give us an overview? Sure. There's, you know, there are a lot of factors that we don't know yet here. So we have two drugs, well, we have one drug that's approved, another that is close to approval will likely be approved. And these have real but modest benefits in this disease. They're the, the slowing of the rate of progression is, you know, on an order that over time it has a great effect, but we'd love to see more. What we don't know about 1812 is, is 1812 could easily be synergistic, synergistic or complementary to these treatments, but it's also possible that 1812 could be a monotherapy. And in terms of the pharmaceutical properties of uh, CT1812, in particular, I want to focus on the fact that it has a systemic route of administration, and that's a disease that is often bilateral. Could you comment on how that has some interest, particular interest to investigators and clinicians like yourselves? Yeah, to me, um, the idea of using a pill to treat dry macular degeneration um, would be wonderful. Um, it, it's many of these patients have. Uh, or a lot of these patients have bilateral disease and nobody wants to get shots in both eyes for an extended period of time, probably for life, um, because the disease doesn't suddenly disappear. The fact that it's a small molecule that actually with once a day dosing allows us to target where we need, which is the retina, the RPE in particular, with crossing of the blood retinal barrier, which is also very important anytime you're talking about 
a systemic medication. The other thing that's sort of missed is that many times when we do clinical studies, especially the phase two that's ongoing currently, we want to enroll patients with geographic atrophy and, and, and use some of the outcomes that the FDA has given us. But it's a bilateral disease. And oftentimes the fellow eye doesn't yet have any atrophy. And there's a lot we can learn from that fellow eye in terms of how early can we go. Tony, these are all exciting um, uh, points of view in terms of how this new drug with a new mechanism of action could be used in such a prevalent disease. But the question that always comes is safety. So both in our Alzheimer's disease studies, in our dementia with Lewy body studies, and now in our dry AMD studies, we have a patient population of a very similar age. So we get good data on safety that we can apply from those earlier studies now to dry AMD. We also get very good studies around drug exposure. So this has allowed us really to move directly uh, from the proof of concept and preclinical studies into a, into a proof of concept phase two study of uh, several hundred individuals uh, directly. And Jeff, if I can add something, the safety for a systemic agent is critical to get levels into the retina through systemic administration, we've often encountered various systemic toxicities. So having the safety data from this drug in the Alzheimer's disease patients really is helpful to creating a comfort level for administering this in the retina patients and administering it earlier on in the course of disease. Okay, so now let's talk about the MAGNIFY trial. So this is a phase two clinical trial run by Cognition, and it's now testing uh, CT1812 in patients with geographic atrophy secondary to dry MD. So we have 123 patients in the CT1812 group and a similar number in the placebo group. They have clinical characteristics that resemble a lot the previous clinical trials in geographic atrophy. These patients are going to be followed for 24 months. The primary outcome measure is going to be growth and, as Peter said, rate of growth or the slope of the GA lesion measured with FAF and some additional endpoints such as ellipsoid zone area, drusen volume, including some functional outcomes. Magnify phase two clinical study uh, has, has all the features that we'd want uh, in a GA study. So the first is, is duration. You know, a lot of people try to cut it short and do like a six-month study. And there's very, this is a very slow-moving disease. So if you do such a short study, you really may not find any value in it whatsoever, and there's value there. By doing a study uh, for two years, like, like is planned, uh, you would expect to see some of those time points to really see how that slope is working. So you could you could watch it, say, at six-month intervals to make sure your slope's getting bigger at, at each one of the intervals. That's number one. Number two, um, it's perfectly controlled. We're using an imaging outcome. The idea of having a placebo-controlled study is also very uh, appealing for a phase two because using that, uh, you can very easily design the phase three study thereafter. The simplicity of the design is is really enticing because we run a lot of clinical trials and there are issues with many studies such as masking, how to mask the injections, how to, um, from the FDA standpoint, masking on those is really a critical 
concern and here with an oral medication having a placebo pill is is very easy the just the simplicity of the arms as well so from our study coordinators this is a very nice study to run well and jeff brings up a great point because you know it, we have an fda approved product for the treatment of ga so one of the first questions uh, people will ask is, well, aren't all your patients getting treated with the Apellus product? So why would they want to enter a clinical study? And the answer is a lot of patients don't want to be receiving intravitreal injections. That's the first thing they ask me. Well, that's great, doctor. You have something that works, but I don't want a shot in the eye every four to eight weeks. That's a very important point that uh, for our audience who are not specialists, when it comes to injecting a drug in the eye of a patient with wet AMD, there's the prospect or the perception of benefit that is very evident within a few weeks, as opposed to a disease that is slowly progressive and uh, the outcomes are not gonna be seen by the patient um, anytime soon. Yeah, I think the mechanism of action of the um, the cognition approach of 1812 lends itself to perhaps having impact sooner than what we've seen with the current complement inhibitor. So it's where the, the potential to slow the rate of GA progression is important, but I think there is the potential here to have functional impacts from this treatment. With the C3 and C5 inhibitors, we're seeing an increased rate of CNV formation. We don't really know the mechanism around that, but maybe that's a class effect. Right now we have drugs. Um, the next generation, I hope, are better than our first generation and, and so on and so forth. So to me, this is sort of the next generation. Can we do better? As we look down the road and assume that complement inhibitors have clearly become our first road to treating GA, it's hard to envision that five years down the road, monthly or every other month injections are still going to be the mainstay of therapy. And so it, it stands to everyone's thought that we're going to need some means of either systemic delivery, drug delivery, gene therapy, and certainly a safe systemic administration via a pill would be an easy approach and a easily adaptable approach for patients for this disease that they could be treated for for decades. This is a disease that we're gonna to have to hit it hard early and continue that treatment for an extended period, if not for life. Um, and so making an easy delivery is vital. Thank you both for your insights. Uh, two of the greatest experts uh, in the field have joined us here today and uh, I'm sure it helped everyone here, I myself, better understand the current pipeline, also understand this new drug currently under uh, phase two investigation and how much we'll learn, as you heard today, about this disease, earlier stage of disease, its interaction with uh, patients with uh, neovascular, AMD, and so on. So thank you both, and I hope we can catch up soon uh, once we have more data and we can discuss that. On behalf of Cognition Therapeutics, thank you for joining us for this Cognition Conversation. We want to thank our panelists, Jeff and Peter, and our host, Gus, for this insightful conversation. 
Thanks for listening to Conversations, a podcast series by Cognition Therapeutics, where we discuss Alzheimer's disease, dementia of the Lewy body, and other age-related neurodegenerative conditions. Our goal is to bring this important topic to patients, caregivers, doctors, and others interested in conditions of aging, because these issues affect us all. You can watch video recordings of this podcast series at our website, cogrx.com, under the Conversations tab.